Welcome to Science for the People and happy birthday. Not to you. Sorry, we don't know when your birthday is. This is our special birthday episode. Every year, we do a special event for our patrons where they get a special card and merchandise that highlights the career of an amazing scientist who we think is worth knowing about. If you'd like to get your own card with a portrait of this year's birthday honoree and some custom-written terrible poetry about her life, sign up to be a patron at scienceforthepeople.ca. But for now, Rochelle is here with me to say happy birthday to Mary Golda Ross. Hello, Rochelle, Bethany. who is this person? Hello, Bethany. <laughs> How are you doing today? I am great. How about you? I am really good. Um, Mary Golda Ross, who was a delight to read about, she was the first woman engineer at Lockheed um, and uh, the first known Native American woman engineer. Um, she's an absolutely fantastic figure, and I really enjoyed getting to know her a little bit better and reading more about her. She had a really fascinating life and did some amazing work. And Lockheed, as in Lockheed Martin, which I think is known primarily now for, uh, they do a lot of contract work for the Department of Defense. Um, they do a lot of, I want to say, missile defense systems. Yep, that's the Lockheed. Yep. And they also did a lot of air work. I think they did like planes and navy stuff yeah back in the day lockheed was where a lot of the cutting edge and probably still is if we're honest where a lot of the cutting edge um flight and uh, space research was done in particular back during world war ii and the cold war and mary golda ross was born well before that actually right uh, Mary Ross was born in 1908 in the foothills of the Ozark Mountains in Oklahoma. She's of, was of Cherokee descent. And when she was uh, a young child, she was sent to live with her grandparents, uh, in the Cher- Cherokee Nation capital within Oklahoma. And I may pronounce this wrong. Tahlequah? Is that how you pronounce that? I would say Tahlequah. Tahlequah? Tahlequah, but Oklahoma. I- don't know if that is my East Coast heritage coming through. It's actually funny because until I read about Mary Golda Ross, I did not know that Oklahoma had mountain foothills in it. <laughs> so that'll tell you how often I've been there. So if you're from this place and I have terribly mispronounced the name of your treasured home, I do apologize. Uh, I have never actually heard this word spoken aloud. Uh, we're going with Tahlequah. I Tahlequah. Think. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, Mary actually credits her Cherokee heritage for helping her pursue um, a very non-traditional career path. Uh, in particular, if you look at the at the era in 1908, in the 1910s, the 1920s, um, you wouldn't see uh, a lot of women in the education system. Um, but the Cherokee culture values education equally for both genders for all subjects. So there was never any pushback in her family, in particular from her father, on whether or not she should pursue her interest in math and science. It was just, yes, learning is good, education is good, go for it. Which is so cool to hear from this era. Well, and especially because she was brilliant. Absolutely. So she graduated from public high school at the age of 16 and then enrolled in a local college to study maths. Um, there's a, a great quote from her from this era that math was more fun than anything else. It was always a game to me. Um, and also one uh, where she said, I was the only female in my class. I sat on one side of the room and the guys on the other side of the room. I guess they didn't want to associate with me, but I could hold my own with them and sometimes did better. And so that both breaks my heart and makes me go, yeah, all at the the same time. I just I feel like she must have had and from what I could see from all the research you did, 
um, about her career, she had such a wonderful sense of self-confidence. Like she clearly knew what she was good at and she was proud of it. And that's just so glorious, especially um, given, you know, that this was the 1920s. I mean, you know, women were not exactly encouraged to study math. <laughs> and there would have been a lot of doubt in her abilities as well, in particular, in an, as she was unproven, um, if she was applying for things or when she initially started school, there would have been, I am certain, a lot of doubt and a lot of pushback from her in those spaces. And um, in all of the research I've read and all of the quotes I've read, there's this real sense of positivity and perseverance and just she wanted to do it and was interested in it enough that it didn't bother her. I mean, it may have at the time, but she she doesn't seem to be holding that um, as a particular grudge later on in life. Well, and uh, from some of the research that I saw from you, she actually would call her professors late at night with solutions to problems. She did. <laughs> so, problems. so even though maybe she didn't always get on with the other students in her classes, uh, the professors, if they didn't know right away, they would have noticed pretty fast that she was keen and very smart. And she graduated pretty early, didn't she? Yeah. At the age of 20, she got a BA in mathematics. Um, and this would have been in 1928 from Northeastern State College, which is in Oklahoma. And what's interesting is at this time, less than 4% of women were completing a college degree of any kind. So she was in a minority already. And then also when you think about the mathematics department, where graduating w women were even more rare, she was very much uh, a rare thing in the 1920s. That's awesome. But of course, in the 1920s in America, there were not actually a lot of professions that were necessarily really open to women, um, even women with college degrees. Absolutely. Um, the kind of the, the options were kind of teaching, uh, teaching, <laughs> nursing, and uh, I hope you like teaching. <laughs> And indeed, that is where she got her start. She spent the next um, eight or nine years teaching math and science in high schools nearby. Um, there was a brief period where she actually went to work as a statistical clerk for the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C. Um, and while working there, there was another Cherokee woman from the Department of Education who recognized her skills really, really quickly. And uh, in 1937, she was sent into the field. Uh, she went to Santa Fe, New Mexico and became a girls advisor, which is um, the equivalent to a dean of a women's school at a co-educational Native American boarding school. Um, so she taught for a bunch of years, went to do something else, and then was recognized as someone who definitely needed to be out in the field teaching, in particular, given her expertise in those subjects. Um, and so she was asked to go back out, which she did. And one of the other things I just love about her is something like a couple of podcast hosts <clears throat> who I might know she is completely incapable of not learning. Oh, this is, this is something that is echoes throughout her career constantly. It, it happens time and time again. She doesn't kind of rest on her laurels. She doesn't sit there and think, okay, this is, this is where I'm at. This is good. I'm happy here. I'll just kind of progress generally. Um, or I'm happy at this level every step of the way from the time she was a young girl right till she's in her retirement. 
Um, she's constantly pushing herself to learn more. And uh, a great example is while she was doing this teaching in New Mexico, she actually, over the summers, um, over the course of four summers, she completed a master's in mathematics, which she got in uh, 1938. And she received this degree from Colorado State College. So she's doing a full-time job, but also continuing to pursue her education in mathematics, which is just really impressive and fantastic. Can I take a momentary side trip here and note that I've always kind of been amused by the phrase resting on their laurels, because until about, I want to say a month ago, I thought that laurels were like a funny slang term for your butt. So like (laughs) resting on your butt, as opposed to like the laurels that you give to heroes in Greek history, the laurel wreaths they would wear. You should not rest on the laurel wreaths you have won in my head the laurels are that you're resting on is just your butt. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. It's always interesting to actually think through some of those phrases to see what they actually mean. Yes. Anyway, um, so this was she earned her master's in 1938. But that was actually she managed to hold really good jobs all the way through the Depression. Um, but then, of course, World War Two happened. Yes. So World War Two um, led to the end of Mary Golda Ross's teaching career. Uh, and not in a bad way, just in uh, it was the Second World War. There was a massive shortage, massive shortage of uh, people that were really needed mathematicians, engineers, um, new technology was needed people who knew existing technology at the time. Remember, as well, we think of math as something and calculations as something that we can just do on phones on calculators. But the word calculator comes from the people that used to do the calculating. So even if you're not doing mathematics research, the skills of a BA or master's in mathematics was hugely valuable just to be able to compute um, really complex figures. And at this time, the most complex mathematics that was needed was to support the war, in particular, the engineering work that was being done to advance uh, airplanes, which are a huge component of World War II. Um, obviously, there's lots of machinery involved in World War II. And of course, World War II is when we get the rise and the creation of uh, nuclear missiles and nuclear bombs. And so again, that's a very science-intensive, mathematics-intensive research. Um, so because of this shortage early on in World War II, um, on the advice of her father, she ended up moving to Los Angeles and she joined uh, the Lockheed Aircraft Corporation. Uh, this was around 42 um, after learning about opportunities there for people of her technical background. So she was only 34 when she started working for Lockheed, which is really impressive. Yeah. And um, as you mentioned, uh, calculator and the word computer actually comes from the people who were computers, the people doing the actual math calculations. And um, if this reminds you of recent movies, like say the movie and the fantastic book Hidden Figures, that would be why. <laughs> because this was a time when they were hiring women for the first time to do all of this really hefty math in service of the war effort. It was interesting because in this era, it was um, women were selected to do the mathematics um, and to do the the computing. They were actually often called computers, while it was seen as a, a more of a man's job to do the engineering task. So there was a bit of a division of labor, even then a gendered division of labor. It's just interesting to see that mathematics was part was considered to be sort of women's work, and in particular, computing and the work that would later be done by um, computers as we know them today, uh, was considered to be women's work for a long time. So she did actually start out, though, 
while she was in an engineering place, she was working for Lockheed. She actually was a mathematician, right? Yes. So the first couple of years, uh, she worked in the engineering department, but as a mathematician, um, she was working on applying mathematical principles and procedures to special aeronautical problems. Um, At the time when she first got hired, there was only one other woman mathematician in her group. So it's mostly men. um, And even then, uh, only one other woman. Um, we know that more women would come on as mathematicians over over time, um, but at the time, at Lockheed in particular, that's what the ratio was. Her first major job as a mathematical research assistant involved um, working on the compressibility effects on the P-38 Lightning fighter plane as it neared the sound barrier. Um, so the P-38 Lightning was one of the fastest aircrafts at the time, and it was having quite a few problems. Uh, as it approached high-speed flight, the plane's tail would start to shake really uncontrollably, sending it into a steep dive and and potentially a stall, forcing the pilot Ah. to eject. Obviously, (laughs) in a war with a warplane, that's not the greatest. Uh, So that was a big problem with the P-38 Lightning. And um, Mary Golder Ross was one of the people that worked on trying to figure out uh, how to make it more stable. So she looked at uh, the compression, the compressibility effects on the plane. She looked at air elasticity um, and was heavily involved in the mathematics that fed into some of the design changes into, into the P-38. Um, yeah, there was also, um, is this a different plane, the Constellation, which was so large, it was a plane that it had to be treated as a flexible body. <laughs> yeah, that was really, uh, there's some interesting stuff that she worked on around aircraft and uh, trying to help um, run the figures and run the calculations to understand how these new really cutting edge airplanes were failing or how they could design them better. So a really interesting job and a really interesting challenge that had her sit quite close in with the engineering group there. Um, when the those studies were completed and the group was disbanded, and this was around uh, the time after the war effort was no longer needed because the war was over, um, most of the people that were hired, um, in particular most of the women who were hired to support the war effort, were let go. But the manager of the aerodynamics and structures department at Lockheed recognized um, Mary Ross's talents and offered her an opportunity to become an engineer, which is really high praise at a time when um, most women weren't offered jobs. Most women, if they were offered a position at a place like Lougheed, were uh, provided access to only be mathematicians. And after the war, most of the women that they had hired, of the few women they had hired, were let go. So if you take all those things into account, that probably tells us a lot about what people at Lougheed thought of her and her work at the time. And of course, being Mary Golda Ross, she does not turn down an opportunity to learn new things. <laughs> not at all. She dove right into it. It was an intensive training period, uh, both on the job and by taking um, what was called an emergency war training course in math and aeronautical engineering. Um, plus, I believe she took some classes at UCLA as well to try and ramp up into the role really quickly. And in 1949, she received her first professional engineering certification as a mechanical engineer in the state of California. So it did not take her long. That's amazing. I just, I I can't, I, I just feel like at some point she must have been tired. But it's, it's just amazing. I feel like she kind of had this deep love of academic learning and just constantly trying to stay not just on top of her game professionally, but just, I mean, a real love of learning new things. Absolutely. And she really clearly seems to enjoy 
the learning as well. It's it's a challenge, but she also describes it as fun and interesting um, all throughout all the articles that I read and the quotes that I've seen from her. So it's it's something that she really liked to pursue and got a lot out of, which is so great to see. Um, so she advanced really quickly through Lockheed. If we take into account um, the 10 years up till about 53, um, so it's 11 years for 42 to 53, She, when she was moving through Lockheed, she started as um, just a, a kind of research assistant, uh, then moved to up, up to a senior research assistant, then she became a full mathematician, then she started to do stress an, uh, analysis, and then became a stress engineer. So she's moving through roles really quite quickly. Um, and then in 53, something very exciting happened to her career. Uh, she joined an elite group of 40 engineers uh, into the Skunk Works division, which became the nucleus of Lockheed Missiles in Space Co., which is now known as Lockheed Martin. So this is an elite group that was tasked to uh, build the world's most experimental and breakthrough technologies in absolute secrecy at a pace uh, basically impossible to match. This was an incredibly elite group of 40 people. They were all handpicked from Lockheed, and Mary Golda Ross was the only woman. Uh, okay. Why is it called Skunk Works? <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know this either. Um, the reason it was called Skunk Works, um, so there was a team engineer named Irv Culver, uh, and he was a fan of Al Cap's newspaper comic strip, uh, Little Abner, in which there was um, a joke about uh, a sort of running joke about a place deep in the forest called Skonk Work. So S-K-O-N-K rather than skunk. Um, and there in this forest, there was a strong beverage that was being brewed from skunks, uh, old shoes and other kind of weird ingredients. Um, and so one day, uh, this engineer's phone rang and he answered it by saying, Skonk Works, inside Van Culver speaking. And fellow employees quickly adopted the name for their kind of mysterious division at Lockheed, Skonk Works, and that then became, uh, over time, Skunk Works. So uh, that's basically what happened. It was kind of a popular comic and became a bit of an inside running joke, uh, a little bit unintended. And now it has forever been known as Skunk Works. <laughs> When inside jokes end up in the canon. This is the danger of inside jokes. Uh, both the danger and the joy. It's true. I just picture everybody having little skunks on their professional little t-shirts. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I hope they had. I'm I'm sure they must have. They must have had like little skunk stickers or something. Skunks drawn on their the sides of their 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 equipment. I don't know. I feel like this must have been an ex a fairly extensive inside group at, or inside joke at the time with the group. And so they were supposed to build new things in absolute secrecy. Do we know what they what she helped build? We know some, but obviously this was highly experimental technology. It was also really highly classified. And a lot of what she worked on is apparently still classified today. So there's not a lot we know about this time in her career, other than she um, worked with Skunk in Skunk Works for quite a while. And she was very well thought of. Um, we know that she worked as a research engineer um, and participated in the performance and evaluation studies um, for low-altitude defense missile systems, um, some intermediate-range ballistic missile systems, intercontinental ballistic missile systems, and some near-Earth satellite systems, and uh, some underwater-launched um, systems as well. 
And this is all work that involves quite complex mathematical calculations um, with a variable elements that affect missile performance. So she really kind of dug deep into missile design. And there's a great video that you can find online of her appearing on what is effectively a game show from the 50s, uh, where they introduce her and she's allowed to ask yes or no questions about her career, and as they have to try and guess what type of career she has. And it took them quite a while to get around to the fact that she was a missile and rocket designer. Um, and that's effectively what she was doing, which is really, really cool. A little bit scary, but really cool. I kind of, I, I love like the range of studies basically comes down to if you can fire it, she studied it. Yeah, I mean, one of the major ballistic missile projects was Polaris, um, which involved launching nuclear missiles from a submarine uh, beneath the surface of the ocean. She was working in a relatively new field at the time, uh, hydrodynamics and helped establish some design parameters for the scale models to be used in the initial tests that would help determine how such a, a body would behave as it was launched in the water. Um, her research also helped establish technical and operational requirements for the Agena rocket, uh, the first launch vehicle, and the forerunner of the Apollo program. So around uh, in her Skunk Works career, she started really heavily with missile systems and then started to move into the space program and space travel over time. That's amazing. And she was still the only woman. Absolutely. Um, she Until the 60s, she was the only female engineer in the Skunk Works group, which is um, stunning to me that she was able to work for so long in a field as almost always the only woman, not just in the room, but in like all the surrounding rooms around her as well. Um, I'm sometimes working in STEM, the only woman in the room, but usually there's a woman at least the next room over I can talk to. <laughs> Yeah, I just I, I mean, I admire so much about her. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of tough when you're talking about scientists and, and engineers who work in kind of violent professions, um, you know, because missiles are meant to kill people. Yeah, That's not super great. But I mean, at the same time, she was clearly just so brilliant. And also just so like she she must have been so confident in her own abilities and also just have such a love for what what she was doing, you know, because those kind of environments, they're just they're full of all these little tiny pressures. And you very know, competitive. Like, yeah. Um, so I just I, I, I wish I could have met her. She sounds just so awesome. <laughs> Everything we have or that I was able to find um, says that all of her coworkers spoke very highly of her. Uh, there's a, a quote from her manager that made it to the Society of Women Engineers. Um, and the quote is, I would unhesitatingly place her in the top 10% of engineers of my acquaintance and professional knowledge. That is high praise. Well, especially because I don't know about you, but I get a lot of comments like, you're the smartest woman I've ever met. Mm -hmm. But you notice that this manager, who was a man, did not say female engineers. He said top 10% of engineers. Yep. And that, to <laughs> me, makes this quote uh, what it is, which is it's top 10% of all engineers I've ever met, and those I know of, because he says in professional knowledge as well. So he's not just limiting it to the people he's met. He's also limiting it, uh, expanding that limit out to people he knows exist. <laughs> high praise, high praise. Absolutely. And she she advanced in the end. She didn't completely stay in Skunk Works, right? She advanced out of it. 
Yeah, she was kind of did. She continued to work in Skunk Works, but also branched out into other types of projects and some projects that are now more publicly knowable and that we can talk about. Um, so in 58, she was promoted to research specialist and she had some increasingly increasing responsibility to do more independent research, still in missile systems, but also satellite systems um, for both uh, proposed military and civilian missions. So now we're starting to get into the space race era when space really shifted and became the focus of a lot of work in Lockheed and uh, beyond it in the US government. Um, so as an advanced system engineer in the early 60s, she worked on some general analysis and evaluation studies relating to manned satellite missions, including re-entry into Earth's atmosphere, hypervelocity impact of particles on space vehicles, um, as well as still looking at the effect of underwater explosions on submarines for some of the work she was doing there. Well, and the Im- the impact of particles on space vehicles that's really important it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't seem like it would be that important but it's becoming more and more important as humans put more and more stuff into earth's orbit it's actually becoming an issue for like the space station and you have to be able to track all of these tiny little particles because tiny little particles are zipping around the earth at incredibly high speeds and if they hit you they're probably going to leave a hole behind. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There is a lasting impact to a lot of the work she did in this era, which is fascinating to think about. And also important to remember that at this time, this was so new that it was unclear. All of this stuff was unclear. We were unclear enough it was even possible, right? We didn't know even what that kind of speed would do to a human body. We weren't sure at all whether or not someone would be able to survive in uh, no gravity. Like, all of this was so cutting edge and new. I'm not even sure there's an appropriate, an appropriate like metaphor nowadays for the type of cutting edge we're talking about here. That's amazing. And she also worked on uh, missions, not just um, you know for re-entry into Earth's atmosphere and stuff like that. She actually worked on missions for Mars and Venus, right? Yeah, absolutely. So some of her work includes um, criteria for missions to Mars, Venus, and some of the outer planets, uh, some of the initial preparations and planning and thinking about that, um, as well as some preliminary design of orbital space systems and interplanetary um, inter- interplanetary expeditions uh, that were potentially on the, the proposals. Um, and during this time, she also developed a bunch of data for the NASA Planetary Flight Handbook Volume 3, uh, which projected some spaceflight guidance up to the year 2000. So this was basically them looking forward to say, this is what we have to do. These are the challenges ahead of us and trying to project those out as best they could at the time, which was in the 60s, um, 40 years into the future, which is no small task. And she also continued to work on missiles. Yeah, she did continue to conduct some studies um, to try and understand and evaluate the major technical and operational requirements for um the missile systems that were growing more complex, including uh, space systems and how missiles would work in with those. Um, As a senior advanced system staff engineer, uh, she worked on the Poseidon and Trident missiles. um, And uh, I believe those were submarine launched ballistics created for the US, the the US uh, Navy. Yeah, the Poseidon definitely is. I know that. Um, But I feel like, yeah, that's the kind of the unifying theme is if you can fire it, she worked on it. <laughs> if you can fire it into space, if you can fire it underwater, if you can fire it in the air. Projectiles that go really fast. <laughs> and I find it hard, actually. I was 
I was kind of struck when I was reading your research on this. I am almost surprised she retired. Yeah, she did, but I, I agree. So it feels like, oh man, you feel a little bit like she's just going to keep doing this forever and ever and ever. And she must have like kept going. Um, but as we all do, uh, she retired, um, in 1973. She worked for over 30 years at Lockheed. Um, and she retired at the age of 65. At the time she retired, there were 100 women engineers at Lockheed compared to the only 25 women engineers, physicists, and mathematicians, uh, that were there in 1959. So a huge change, still a lot of work to do for sure in 73 and still a lot of work to do now if we're all being honest. Um, but that's, that's a big change. And I'm sure that it must have been very gratifying to see that increase in female faces around her as she worked her 30 year service at Lockheed. And I do really like that what she was actually most excited about was not necessarily the missiles that could kill people, but space. Yeah, because she, space. Well, <laughs> because space. And also, um, I think probably because of, and she even says so, um, because a lot of the work that she did on missiles and ballistics was obviously classified. She found the NASA space work a lot of fun because she could talk about it. Um, and she considers herself, she considered herself really fortunate to have been on the ground floor of space technology. And as we mentioned kind of early on in the show, you know, we've been talking about her as a, a really standout engineer and as a, as someone who is also often the only woman in the room, but she was also another minority. She was of the Cherokee nation. Um, but she didn't really know too much about that, which I was kind of surprised because she was raised actually, um, in the capital. <laughs> yeah, Oklahoma. I don't know as much about why she wasn't as in touch with her Cherokee heritage throughout most of her life. Um, but I did read that that was true. Uh, her father spoke the language and she knew a little bit about the Cherokees past, about the Trail of Tears, a little bit about her heritage, but not as much in depth. Um, it wasn't until around a decade after her retirement that she really turned her attention and focus to her Cherokee roots and background. Uh, she became involved with the American Indian Science and Engineering Society and also the Council of Energy Resource Tribes um, and really started to get involved with uh, that community and part of her that she didn't know as well and dove right into it as well as promoting STEM um, science, engineering, and technology careers amongst women and Native Americans. And she just, I mean, part of that promoting that was just this constant refrain, education, education, keep learning, do not stop. <laughs> Absolutely. And when she was asked um, later on, she believed that her most important actual contribution was the career guidance work she did in the early years when she was involved in informing families and school counselors of engineering opportunities for students. Um, she said spreading the word about engineering was especially critical during that time since there were so few female engineers. So this is something that uh, as someone who clearly loved learning and education her entire life, she really strongly believed in its value and its transformative abilities, but also just its kind of raw joy, I think. And she very much tried to infect other people with that joy. And I use infect in its most positive connotations. Um, she spent a lot of time and focus in particular in her ret retirement, encouraging people to pursue education and encouraging people to see her as a role model and see other 
amazing women and Native American and minority people out there as um, mentors to get into the field. And yeah, that love of learning was just, it just shines through in one of the, um, in one of the interviews you uh, used as one of your resources, it actually mentions that there she is talking about her career, you know, after retirement, she's in like her 70s or 80s, and she's surrounded by stacks of books. Yeah, she and never stop. <laughs> and she was still taking classes in her retirement, like even when she's done 65 years of excellent work, she's like, all right, what am I going to do next? What's the next thing I'm going to learn? And that is just for me. I hope that I'm still interested in learning new things and taking new classes at 65. That would make me so happy. And even more than 65, she lived to 100. Absolutely. So she uh, died in 2008 when she was 100 years old. Um, and at 96, she was actually present for the dedication of the Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. Uh, she was celebrated on a Google Doodle on her 110th birthday uh, in 2018, which was not all that long ago. And there is still a scholarship in her name that supports female engineers and technologists. Thank you so much, Rochelle, for doing all of this research. She, like, Mary Goldoross makes me want to go read a book and learn something new, because if she can keep doing it, well, I best get out there. Absolutely. She's a fantastic lady, and I very much encourage people, if you're able to find out more about her, um, in particular, if you find a resource that I don't link to in the show notes, I would love to get it from you. I spent a bunch of time trying to find more books and things that maybe she would be in. Uh, but I really, I couldn't find anything. And I'm, I'm really interested to learn more about this lady. So if anybody out there has any more information on Mary Golder Ross, please fire it over. I would love to see it. Yeah. And Thank you so much for doing this and happy birthday, Mary Goldoraz. Happy birthday. Who lived to more than a hundred. So impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to and learning about Mary Goldoraz with us. She is well worth learning about. We've got links to more information about her at scienceforthepeople.ca, where you can also do all the good things like subscribe and follow us on social media, and you can support us on Patreon too. Thank you especially to our patrons who make Science for the People happen. We couldn't do it without you. This episode is for you. If you'd like to get birthday merch next year, sign up now. Support the show, get to learn amazing new things about fantastic old sciencey people. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.